Welcome to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. So glad that you are here today to spend some time. So what is your cue that the holidays are here? Is it the cooler weather, maybe the early holiday lights and decorations that have already started to appear in your neighborhood? Or maybe at the stores, you're starting to see Christmas decorations already starting to go up. Maybe it's the music that you start hearing. Speaking of music, do you recognize this? Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. Mistletoe hung where you can see every couple tries to stop. Yep, that is Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. It is sung by Georgia's own Brenda Lee. That song is now 65 years old. Brenda was just a kid. She was just 13 when she sang that song and it first came out. Well, this month, in honor of the 65th anniversary, Brenda has released her very first music video of that song. The video features another Georgia peach and country star, one of my favorites, Trisha Yearwood. In the video, they are trimming the tree. There's baking cookies and even Santa makes a cameo. I'm sure that this will be in play as you get your holiday season started. And speaking of music, another Georgia star is back on the scene. One, two, three, uh. That is Atlanta's own Andre 3000. He was one half of the Southern hip-hop duo, Outkast, along with rapper Big Boy. Andre is on his own now, and he's got a new solo album that is coming out uh, this weekend. It's called New Blue Sun. Another Atlanta son, Rodney Carmichael, got to interview Andre and got a first listen to the album. Rodney is NPR Music's hip-hop staff writer. So Rodney set the scene for us. Well, you know, a lot of that was a lot of behind the scenes wrangling that mm-hmm. I didn't even take part in. I just uh, was presented with the opportunity <laughs> to talk to the man himself. And and obviously I couldn't pass that up. I mean, I've been an Outcast fan since day one, Andre fan since day one. Um, I've always admired, loved his evolution and the way he pushed hip hop forward. And like anybody else, I was just really curious to hear where he was with it now. So, you know, that that was it. So you actually didn't sit in the same room because he's in uh, L.A. right now. So uh, you all he was exactly. in the, he was in the NPR studio there. Uh, but when you jumped on uh, to get ready to do this interview, he was doing he was in his element and he was doing something. He was totally in his element. He was playing his flute. That's it. He had brought his flute mm-hmm. to the studio. And um, he was he was just, you know, he says it's kind of like a a way that he just kind of kills time. You know, we've seen we've all seen the videos of and, and pictures of him around the world in different locales, you know, just walking down the street playing the flute. You know, I think for him, the same way we might pull out our cell phone our smartphone Mm -hmm. and scroll he pulls out his flute and and starts playing you know and um he did that in the studio and it really it kind of set the mood for the interview i think because it was so warm Mm -hmm. and rich the tone and it was like he he blessed it (laughs) (laughs) right right you know i didn't even know he played the flute did you know that about him that he even that he did that well yeah because you know like i said he we've had these um 
these random Andre sightings mm-hmm. for probably at least the last decade or so, right? And fans will get, you know, video footage. Oh, there's Andre at the airport playing the flute. Oh, there's Andre walking down the street in Japan playing the flute. You know, so we were kind of starting to, I think fans were kind of following him in this really random way uh, through the internet. Because other than that, you know, Andre, he's been described kind of as reclusive. Um, obviously, he doesn't do, he hasn't released a lot of music. I mean, every every blue moon, he drops a fire guest verse on somebody's project, mm-hmm. you know. Again, outside of these killer guest verses that he does on occasion, the only thing we had to really keep up with him was these random uh, Andre sightings, always with the flute. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, when I got the advance to the album, I found out just just how different it was. Mm, New Blue Sun is the name of the album. You actually are one of maybe just a handful of people who have heard this album. What does it sound like? Oh, man, what does it sound like? You know, what's funny, because when I talked to him, he said he he has a hard time describing it. Mm -hmm. And I would say I do, too. Mm -hmm. Um, It sounds so much different, probably, than what we might have expected from Andre, but in a sense, I think if you've always been an Outkast fan, you've come to expect the unexpected, Mm -hmm. um, especially from Andre. So it sounds very, I would say, meditative. It sounds very uh, contemplative and and tranquil. Um, It it sounds very uh, tribal and, and transcendent. You know, and um, a, a, a lot of other artists, you know, he worked with some incredible artists on this album, um, including Carlos Nino, who who co-produced it with him. Carlos Nino is a percussionist and he's a real heavy in, in like the alternative jazz scene, experimental jazz scene. So that kind of gives you a sense. If you kind of look at some of the other players on the album, you start to get a sense of um, of what kind of you know, what kind of sound sound uh, system he's kind of in world he's playing in. So there's there's another uh, there's another person that he, he plays with who is kind of a, an Alice Coltrane acolyte. And, you know, if you know anything about Alice Coltrane, you know, once married to John Coltrane, again, this is very experimental jazz world. So. You know, all of these people were making this album along with Andre. It was very collaborative. And and that's kind of the the sense and the vibe of things. Mm. I want to ask you, what do you think makes Andre 3000 so attractive to to so many people, regardless of whether they know or like hip hop or not? They know about this man. I think it's his reach. Mm. You, You could tell Andre was never satisfied. You know, and especially in a genre like hip hop, you know, over the last 50 years, it's become the most consumed genre of of of, of popular music. And that that in and of itself tends to, I think, make artists feel like, you know, at a certain point, genres get to a place of being very rebellious to a point where they kind of get to a place where feeding the audience what they expect is kind of like you know, the thing that you do if you want to stay successful. And Andre, from the beginning, he was 
never satisfied with that. Outcast was never satisfied with that. It was not always easy to be an Outcast fan. I mean, people now look back at it and they're like, oh, yes, we love everything. We loved it all. But in terms of the speed of the evolution that they were going on artistically um, and how fast and how far beyond they were pushing and reaching all the time, they were pulling Outcast fans with them. You know, it's like, hey, you got to keep up. And I think that sense of it, you know, as a producer, as a lyricist, Andre was always at the forefront of of pushing and and reaching and saying, hey, I'm going to go here next. You can come with me if you want to or you can get left behind, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and I think that's really attractive. Yeah. Yeah. So where can we hear your interview? Because there's a complete interview we can catch. Yeah, you could catch the complete interview at npr.org um another good place to catch it is um the all songs considered podcast feed it's the it's the latest episode and in, in all songs considered podcast feed so that's a good place to to listen to it's uh it's about 77 minutes i oh, think wow. of 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 andre just um man going deep <laughs> you know <laughs> going deep yeah. so um if you if you consider yourself a fan of Andre or you you always just had a curiosity about him, please go check it out and 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 I think it'll really prepare you for what's to come Friday when New Blue Sun drops. All right, well, Rodney, thank you so much for taking some time with us to talk about your experience with him. It sounded amazing what I heard. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. When you show up to your election site to vote, how do you know your vote is accurately recorded? Paper versus electronic. An ongoing lawsuit in Georgia is now set to go before a judge in January. The latest on that coming up on Georgia in Play. This is Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. If you voted this past Election Day in Georgia, then you voted on a touchscreen machine. It printed out a paper ballot with a summary and a barcode. And that barcode was read when you slipped it into the master machine to record your vote. You most likely got your I voted sticker after that and then you left. But critics of the technology have been arguing in court for uh, several years now that you actually can't be sure that that code accurately reflects your selections. And there's also some concern that the machines are vulnerable to cybersecurity attacks. The U.S. District Judge that's been hearing the case in Georgia has now set a January 9th bench trial to hear more evidence. So, you know, a bench trial is not uh, a jury, just the judge. Marilyn Marks is the executive director of Coalition for Good Governance, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. They say they're dedicated to transparent government and evidence-based elections. Her group is among the plaintiffs in the case. Marilyn is uh, really the driving force behind this uh, much-watched Curling versus Kemp lawsuit. And Marilyn, you are here now. In short, you want the state to really get rid of these machines and move to to paper ballots. What is it about these machines that causes you so much concern? Leah, first of all, thank you so much for having me today and giving me the chance to explain to your audience just how bad these machines are and why we should do in Georgia what 70 percent of Americans do when they vote. And that a lot of people in Georgia, because they've been voting on touchscreens for so long, mm-hmm. they don't realize 
that Georgia is actually quite an outlier. Most states would never permit all of their voters to vote on touchscreens because they are so dangerous in terms of available for cybersecurity hacking. And instead, most states limit the touchscreens to voters who need them for accessibility reasons and who are not able to mark a ballot by hand. So if you think about it, what Georgia has done, Georgia has chosen an accessibility unit and said everyone must vote on these units that were more designed for lots of options and convenience and not security. So we are doing what other states gave up a long time ago. Um, you're, some of your older viewers, uh, listeners like, like I am, uh, are old enough to remember the Bush-Gore um, controversy that took place. Oh, the and that, <laughs> Yes. And after that, suddenly everybody decided, oh, we need touchscreen voting. Well, by about 2006, states begin to go, wait a minute, this experiment is not a good experiment. It is not secure. You cannot put a screen, a computer, a touch screen between the voter and their ballot. I have a friend who does advocacy work who has a, a quick saying. It's a good one to remember. No screen in between. In other words, putting a hackable computer in between the voter and her ballot is begging for trouble, and there is no way to fix it. That's what our entire lawsuit is about, and we want to see significant changes come before 2024 elections. We want to see Georgians vote the way that 70-plus percent of Americans vote mm. on a system that can be secured. Mm. So you say Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has really failed to address the risks of the state's voting system. How so? Yes. Um, to begin with, in selecting the equipment, even though we disagree with the General Assembly's choice of touchscreen voting, mm -hmm. he did not, when he selected the Dominion equipment, he did not even meet the most minimal requirements that the General Assembly put out. The General Assembly said, for example, that the touchscreens must absolutely protect the voter's right to a secret ballot. But as we all know, who have voted in Georgia, been to the polling place, our votes are publicly displayed. That is absolutely against Georgia Constitution, and it is absolutely in contrast with what the General Assembly told him to do. So he didn't satisfy that, and he didn't satisfy the auditability requirements that the General Assembly put in the law. And they also, in what they put in the law, essentially disallowed the QR codes, which is just one of many problems. So he didn't deliver what was asked to begin with. And then once cybersecurity vulnerabilities were discovered, he has done nothing about them. Absolutely nothing. Mm. And, and he's talked big, but hasn't really done anything. And then when, when the uh, expert, Dr. Alex Halderman, did the study, found the severe vulnerabilities in the software, and then his findings were confirmed by the Department of Homeland Security and said, yes, Dr. Halderman's right. This, is, this system needs to be fixed as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Secretary Ravensburger's response was, 
well, I don't really have the time or the money to fix it before 2024. And as one cybersecurity um, uh, graduate student said, well, it's dumb to walk around a dark alley with $1,000 in your pocket, but it is even worse to walk around a dark alley with $1,000 and announce to everyone that you're walking around there with $1,000 in your pocket. And that's essentially what Secretary Raffensperger has done, is said, hey, look, hackers, you've got a few more months to hack our elections before I'm going to do anything about it. Now, Gabriel Sterling, you know, is the chief operating officer in the Secretary of State's office, has said that uh, Halderman's findings, he dismissed those as being really hypothetical scenarios that that can't really work. Uh, to that, you would, I would imagine you would say, no, that's not true. Exactly. You, you talk to any uh, elections expert, any voting system or cybersecurity expert, and they can scare your socks off with just how simple it is for the thousands and thousands of workers who have access to all of the components to implant malware at all sorts of levels. And it is, as they've said, you know, it's our, our cybersecurity experts have said, Marilyn, you couldn't write the malware. That's true. I couldn't. But you could certainly be an unskilled accomplice in inserting the malware into the system. So it doesn't take it doesn't take but one malware writer, but then there are thousands of people who interact with this equipment who can plant it. Mm. So the judge has set this January 9th bench trial. She also suggested that the two sides should get together and reach a resolution before going to court. Are you open to working with the state and what would a resolution look like for you? Right. We absolutely are. And we've tried it from day one. And it's just not been successful because unfortunately, the system that they have chosen and they are so married to cannot be secured. There is no way to do enough software updates, audits, anything else to secure it. It is by design, by nature, an insecure system. So as long as they are stuck with it or mentally stuck with it, there's really nothing that that we can do to reach a safe, secure election. What we should do is what the General Assembly has said to do. General Assembly has said, look, when there are problems that make the voting system uh, um, unworkable, then you use hand-marked paper ballots. And that is exactly what we should do is go to the default, the backup plan, the fail-safe plan that the General Assembly told us to. So I want to say that I did reach out to the the state and Gabriel Sterling to share their perspective, and I was told that they will let me know and that uh, this week is a little hectic. If and when they should actually uh, grant us some time then to talk, then, of course, we'll bring it. Marilyn Marks, you are the executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you so much for the invitation.
All right, Stephen Fowler, who covers politics for GPB, is here now in studio to talk more about this. One of the things that uh, Marilyn talked about is the fact that our system is insecure. The voting uh, technology is insecure and that the state has not done anything to address it. Uh, Is any of that actually founded in history? Well, Leah, you have to think about this when you talk about Georgia's election systems and election systems in general. There is this balance, elections officials say, between accessibility and security. You could have the most ironclad, locked down, tight election system where, you know, there's 50 million cameras on people who vote one ballot at a time and a paper ballot everywhere, but it's not the most accessible to people. And you could have the most accessible system with lots of options and lots of capabilities and things, but that adds more touch points for breakdowns in the process or other issues like that. So I would say that it's not necessarily a binary of is our election system secure or is it hackable or like vulnerable, you know, vulnerable or a problem? So in thinking about the way Georgia's voting system has worked, you have to go back a little bit. Um, in the 2000s, the early 2000s, Georgia was a pioneer when it adopted electronic voting machines, these direct recording electronic voting machines, giant touchscreen, you push your selections, and once it's done, you hit, uh, you hit done, and then it's saved on a memory card. And so there were some issues with that. And, you know, as Marilyn mentioned, and as the genesis of this lawsuit, which has gone on for almost six years at this point, you know, there were concerns that there was no way for a voter to verify that all of the choices, I vote for candidate A here, candidate B here, was what was actually saved on the memory card. You know, we're not memory cards. You can't take the memory card out and plug it into your brain and be like, yep, that's what it is. So that's the concern on the accessibility front. Also on the security front, there's no way of knowing. Now, the accessibility front... um, with a touchscreen, it's very easy people to just go in and touch and not have to worry about, you know, filling something in on a piece of paper or uh, punch cards or butterfly ballots or all sorts of uh, other technology in the past that have been a little bit issue, uh, a little bit problematic when it's come to uh, being smooth. And so Georgia changed from that voting system to this ballot marking device, which is, again, a touchscreen, but you get a piece of paper on it. And so state officials would say that they're balancing accessibility and security with this new system where it's a touchscreen, it's easy to use, it's accessible, and that piece of paper that has your choices on it means that it's accessible and secure. Uh, one of the other things she said is that, uh, the st- and the state has said this too, that they will not install uh, some software to protect against any type of cybersecurity ahead of the 24 election because there's no time for that. Uh, is that a fair response from the state? So think about this this way. Georgia's election system is really 159 counties with 159 elections offices and 159 staffs and different sizes of manpower and equipment and everything. There are tens of thousands of pieces that make up this software from the ballot marking device to the big central scanner that scans ballots to the servers that contain all of the data that uh, tabulate the votes and that can have the voter registration system. And so all of those things would take time to update. And so at a recent hearing, the state said it would take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours to do. And 
you know, that's a lot of time. And <clears throat> the ability to do it down in southwest Georgia is a little bit different from doing it here in Fulton County, where there's lots of people and lots of space. And Leah, it's always election season in Georgia. We just wrapped up local elections recently. There's already preparation underway for the presidential primary that's in March. There's a redistricting special session happening where elections offices are going to have to go in and change who people are going to be able to vote for based on the maps that lawmakers do. So it's a lot of time. There's always election season. And going back to accessibility and security, you know, you have to test all of this software that you update and test all of this equipment. So it really is always a race against the clock when it comes to making any sort of changes for elections. So that's the stance that the state is taking. Also, their perspective is that these hypothetical vulnerabilities that were identified as part of this lawsuit are bad on paper. Um, obviously, being able to hack and manipulate election equipment is bad on paper. But in reality, it's not going to be that easy, if at all easy, to implement. And so they say these are theoretical things. You would have to have unprecedented levels of access to do these bad things to the election equipment. And there are multiple layers of cybersecurity and physical security and things like audits and other checks to make sure that if something bad somehow did happen, it would be caught. So the U.S. District Judge uh, Amy Totenberg has said that she she has set the date for January 9th for this bench trial, but she would like the two sides to discuss and hopefully come to some sort of compromise and resolution. Um, do you think that that will happen? Is the state willing to compromise? I don't necessarily think there's going to be a compromise worked out ahead of time. I mean, this lawsuit has gone on through multiple election cycles, through multiple different election processes, at multiple different uh, revelations and changes and everything. And so I don't think all of a sudden you're going to see the Secretary of State and these voting rights groups say, you know what, forget it, we'll figure it out together. That said, there have been changes that have been made that have uh, made their way through the lawsuit, maybe because of the lawsuit. And the reality is we are not going to switch to unelectronic voting. We're not going to switch to non-electronic voting. We're not going to switch to fully handmarked paper ballots for the election cycle next year. Um, that's what ultimately people like Marilyn Marks would like to see the state do, but that's not something that the judge is going to order. There are other things that could happen such as more cybersecurity checks or more mandatory audits or uh, other things in the near future that can assuage some of those concerns. And then there's other things that lawmakers have talked about and that the judge has kind of talked about of getting rid of the QR code on the ballot yeah. and making it to where what the scanner scans is the actual text printed out saying, you know, President of the United States, Leah Fleming. And so that way, when you look at that ballot, you see what you selected, it scans what it selected, and everything should line up. But we don't know what's going to happen yet. January is a long way away. There are other changes that could happen. I mean, the Secretary of State's office piloted this software update, and it's possible they could say, okay, this update went really, really well. We will try to roll it out in between these elections. Or they could say, uh, there were some things that had some problems. This is why we didn't do it everywhere. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board. So elections are about accessibility and security, like I've said. They're always happening, and there's always some level of dynamic change happening, whether it's updated guidance or new things that pop up that people deal with, or, you know, the case of 
50 people voting in a small municipal election versus 5 million people in a presidential election have their own unique challenges. So voting is complicated. Election administration is complicated. And unlike some of the other things that we've seen about voting in Georgia and some conspiracies and some questions not grounded in reality, there are valid concerns about the security and accessibility of this election. And so I think this is a conversation, a good conversation that will continue to happen uh, no matter what the final ruling is. All right. And we will continue to watch and talk about it, too. Stephen Fowler, you actually not just cover GPB politics uh, for for GPB News, but you also have your, your podcast, Battleground Ballot Box. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> If you want information and news, chances are you will tune in to GPB. If it's GPB TV, then you will see PBS NewsHour. And now the show is seeking the guidance of teenagers to help them shape the news that you get. We're going to bring you more on that ahead on Georgia In Play. You are listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Have you ever wondered what teenagers are really thinking about when it comes to what's happening around them? Yeah, you can go to social media to see, but that's not really curated into any kind of news coverage. Enter PBS NewsHour. Now you can not only see what young people are thinking about, but how they are advising journalists at PBS NewsHour to report on the news. PBS NewsHour has a new student advisory team to help guide them on content production. Some of the hot topics that they're covering, I was checking out the list, music, dance, community, and culture, new laws or policies that are aimed at controlling what students learn and how they express themselves. And on the list, I see something titled, Run, Hide, Fight, Growing Up Under the Gun. Of course, Georgians are representing on this national advisory board. We are everywhere. There are two students in Georgia that are part of the team. Harrison Tran is a student at Jenkins High School in Savannah. He was born and raised there. And after he's educated, hopefully he will go to Georgetown. That's his dream. He says he will bring his talents back to Savannah as an educator. That is the plan. Harrison heard about this opportunity to work with PBS NewsHour. Where else? On his social media feed. So did Jason Matthews. He's a senior at Houston County High School in Middle Georgia. Here he is. Well, I was scrolling on Instagram one day, and I believe it or not, I came across an ad. And I followed the ad and led me to the Student Supporting Labs, the Instagram page. And I saw that they had recently posted an opportunity. And I applied for the opportunity, answered a few questions, and they got back with me in a few weeks and notified me that I had accept, well, I got accepted to the program. Jay Shun and Harrison have started working with the advisory team, and they say this isn't some sort of grabbing coffee and printing scripts for the adults kind of an internship. They have a real seat at the table. Here is Harrison. I'll be able to pitch stories, um, also look at unedited stories um, from the student reporting labs. Uh, I'll be working with their uh, team on their editorial strategy and approach. Um, how they cover stories regarding young people and the, the issues that matter most to them. Harrison and Jay Shun, they say they have big ideas for stories that you have got to hear from young people. Harrison says he's tackling gun violence, and Jay Shun wants to amplify the voices of minorities. Right now, gun violence is a very big epidemic in the United States. We, we know this very much. Um, uh, in Savannah specifically, there was 
some federal agency, I don't remember off the top of my head, released basically a report on gun violence in Savannah and how those rates were high, really high. Um, and one of the stories that the student reporting labs wanted to cover was gun violence in America, and they wanted two locations. So I'm personally advocating for one of those locations to be Savannah, um, because we're such a, I wouldn't want to say unique story, um, but we have, this has been an epidemic into the 70s, 60s, you know, um, this is something so crucial to every person in Savannah. It's an issue. And I think we aren't seeing solutions right now. Um, hopefully covering this story with young people and reaching that wider audience um, will make that change on the local, state, and federal levels. I'm interested in minorities getting heard, um, representing the underrepresented. I'm interested in systematic racism and racial disparities. So I want to really bring light to that and shed light on it to make this a more just society for us all. All right. That was Harrison, followed by Jay Shun. There is life after high school, and both of these teens say that they've got big plans. Here is Harrison and Jay Shun. Hopefully, maybe Georgetown University. That's my top shot. There's a lot of majors floating in my head. Public policy, political science, journalism, communications, and maybe even education. Going back to be an educator here in Savannah. I plan on attending Morehouse College. I actually just applied to them. I get news back very, very soon. So hope for me that I get accepted to the school. Um, I plan to go there and pursue a degree in business administrations and minor in marketing, and then hopefully go on into the corporate world and climb the ladder and hopefully gain like a marketing position, then go into like creative directing and then producing content, creating things, you know, just just really being creative and in that space of creativity and shedding light on the situations that's going on in society. A Morehouse man and a Georgetown grad. That is what you can look forward to from these two Georgians after they wrap up their time at PBS NewsHour. By the way, Jay Shun has some advice for us journalists. Listen. I believe it's very crucial and it's important for you guys to do that because we are the next leaders and we are the next generation to come and like lead the world. So for you all to gain our perspective on things, it made things more credible, more reliable, and it also draws in the younger audience to listen to the news and to gain information from the news. And it it, it really helps connect everybody together, the younger generation and the older ger- generations, to come to a consensus of prospering together. <laughs> I hear you, Jay Sean, and couldn't agree with you more. In 1990, Congress passed and then-President George H.W. Bush signed into law a joint resolution designating the month of November as the first National American Indian Heritage Month, also known as Native American Indian Heritage Month. Coming up, we're going to bring you the voices of four American Indians who will share what they want you to know this month. That is ahead on Georgia in Play.
This is Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Governor Brian Kemp this month delivered a very moving proclamation, and I want to share just a piece of it with you. He wrote, Georgia has a rich history thanks to the contributions of the many Native American tribes who have lived in our state, including the Cherokee. And he also went on to mention the other tribes. It is Native American Heritage Month or American Indian Heritage Month. There are two aspects of American Indian culture that you're about to hear about right now from two people with intimate knowledge on the subjects. Uh, They live it and they report it. And we're going to talk about language and culture. Robert Jumper is editor of the news publication Cherokee One Feather. And reporter Brooklyn Brown is a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians as well as a reporter. Hello to both of you. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. So, Brooklyn, I want to start with you. Um, You know, language is really how we communicate and we connect. We pass on our heritage. And among many Native American tribes, uh, their languages are in danger. The Cherokee Nation, one of the largest in the country, estimates there are only about 2,000 people left for whom Cherokee is actually their first language, and most of them are over the age of 70. The Biden administration announced an effort to preserve the history with a 10-year national plan to revitalize Native languages. Why are the Cherokee dialects uh, disappearing? Um, I wouldn't say that they're disappearing, but I would say that there is uh, a language revitalization effort happening. Mm -hmm. There's a long, dark history of um, the forced... Uh, disappearance of native languages with uh, assimilation and early colonization periods and Cherokee boarding schools where children were um, abused into not speaking their their language. Um, And colonization creating English as the primary language of America. So um, something we think about a lot at the One Feather is um, the necessary use of Cherokee language in our everyday life. So um, As much as I and Robert and other people um, in the Cherokee community want to um, save the language and use the language, we have to have uh, we have to have things in place that make us that essentially force us to use our language. So, um, you know, I want to ask you, I want to ask you one question. Do you actually speak a Cherokee yourself? Yeah, I'm a second language learner. Yes. Oh, a second a second language learner. Okay, okay. Yes. So one way to preserve uh, the language is, uh, you you have reported on this, um, is in modern tech that we use today, the technology. Yeah. Yeah. Say more. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we have the Cherokee Unicode that allows Cherokee um, on iPhones and computers, and uh, it's a way to bring us into the 21st century and be able to use Cherokee language on our phones. Um, And now Google Maps is also using Cherokee language for map place names as well. Oh, okay. So another way is with reclaiming a Cherokee place names. You've reported on this as well. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah. So um, we have the Cherokee mother town, uh, Gadua, uh, that is in Bryson City that we've reclaimed and recently uh, renamed as Gadua its original name. Uh, we also have Clingman's Dome, which is Kawahi Mulberry Place, and then Western Carolina University's campus in Cullowhee. Talizisquiahi, which means two sparrows place. So we're in the process of renaming or reclaiming these places with their Cherokee names. Uh, So uh, I am looking at you so I can see what you look like. And you are definitely on the younger side of life. Uh, And I'm wondering, 
I'm wondering in your in your life uh, as you as you move about today, um, how much is your culture talked about? Do you feel that there is uh, an embracing of your culture among people that are not American Indian or Native American? Um, among people that are not American Indian or Native American, I would say not really. Um, I am I'm I'm 25 years old. I went to college at UNC Chapel Hill, and uh, I had. A culture shock and there was not a lot of people familiar with my culture at all so outside of western north carolina no i don't think there's a lot of recognition of uh, cherokee specifically eastern cherokee on the koala boundary mm-hmm. robert um this brings me to the point of uh, appropriation cultural appropriation and you have actually been reporting on that how is tribal identity appropriated well, in, in several ways, uh, you can see people actually identifying themselves, the harmless stuff, like uh, coming into our uh, tourism offices, like our welcome centers, and saying, my great-great-grandmother was a Cherokee. Uh, I don't have any credentials. I don't have any way of proving that. I'm just telling you that. Uh, and it, it, it is, in a way, a celebration of, of Native people's People want to have a connection. They want to have a blood connection with Native peoples, but there are those who do it for various reasons. Uh, They will uh, make crafts, identify themselves as Native Americans, and sell those uh, as as a property of of a of a person who is, who identifies themselves as a Native American, specifically as Cherokee, and there are those who do it for reasons of uh, popularity, notoriety, uh, and we've seen that in even national news, seeing people identify themselves as who they are not, uh, and uh, trying to reap the benefit of that based on the heritage of a tribe. Uh, so you're saying that they're appropriating for monetary gains, corporate monetary gains, those kinds of things? Yes. Mm-hmm. And what is the damage that is done to cultural, uh, to tribes with this cultural misappropriation, really? Well, it's, it's uh, if you go back into the most recent history of uh, mascots, for example, uh, you will see uh, caricatures uh, misidentification of people. They will say they're Cherokees, and then they'll say, for example, I wear a war bonnet or a headdress, which was never part of the Cherokee culture at all. They'll say, well, you know, people will come to our boundary and say, well, uh, where are your teepees? Well, Cherokees uh, never wore uh, or never were in those teepees. We had uh, basically kind of makeshift houses. They were never they were never teepees. That's a Western culture thing. So uh, misidentifying us, uh, causing us to have to re-educate uh, people on who we are and what we are. Uh, and, and of course, there, there is damage in, in that uh, it, it, it de- dissolves uh, the, the, the basic foundation of who we are. Uh, when you have, I was, I was reading recently, there's, there are like 200 bogus Cherokee tribes in, in America, people claiming to be Cherokees, actually asking for state and federal funding as, as, uh, uh, as descendants of Cherokees. And that is 
that is that cripples. Not only does it take away from indigenous tribes of this country, but it also takes away from other funding for other individuals uh, as that money is is uh, delegated out. Mm. So what are the solutions to this? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, education, education is one key. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as a matter of fact, as, as recently as yesterday, our, our tribal chief had to put out a statement to the National Congress of American Indians uh, talking about the false claims uh, that are not without harm or consequences. One example in the southeast region of the NCAI, the voices of the EBCI and other leaders uh, uh, tri- of tribal governments have been drowned out by groups claiming to be tribes who are now the majority of the National Congress of American Indians. Education, legislation, uh, the, the most typical things that you would do to try to address an issue like this are the things that we are trying to do. So I really want to give both of you a space right now to just talk about uh, what you want us to know about this month? Do you celebrate it? Uh, And what should we be thinking about this month? And and Brooklyn, what comes to mind for you? Yes, I do celebrate it. I think um, you need to think about the fact that there are there are modern, real indigenous people in your state, in your communities, um, that they're not a figure of the past, that they are real people with a thriving and dynamic culture. Mm. Robert, what about you? Well, I, I do. It is a time to recognize and celebrate the identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's too too much saying Native American or Indigenous peoples. Each each Native American tribe is its own nation, and it has its own language, and it has its own uh, government. And we are a a, a unique uh, race. Uh, so. I think I think celebration of individuality, uh, being being a part of that, being a part of that culture, uh, and helping people recognize, hey, it's okay to identify with us. Just don't identify as us. Uh, don't identify as us, but definitely acknowledge uh, and see you. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that is so powerful. Thank you both so much for sharing this with us. I I think that we cannot um, spend enough time educating uh, people about American Indians, Native American. You know, and I want to ask you both before you go. I mean, I'm using both interchangeably, American Indian Heritage Month, Native American Heritage Month. I've heard them both ways. Do you either of you have a preference? Does it matter to you, Brooklyn? I don't I don't have a preference. Um, I as Robert said, I specifically use tribal names when I can. So we're Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Um, but I understand in broad terms, no, I don't have a preference for American Indian or Native American. Mm-hmm. Robert, do you? Likewise, uh, is uh, my mom always said, "I don't care what you call me as long as you call me for supper." Uh, that that's that's kind of me. I'm I'm happy to be recognized, happy happy to have people engage, uh, and even if they engage. In my mind, uh, in a negative way, it's still an opportunity to educate. So, uh, any anything's good. Oh, thank you so much for saying that because that's a very important point. Even if it comes out wrong or comes off negative, that is a great place to start uh, for us to educate one another and come together. So, 
Thank you so much, Brooklyn Brown. You are a reporter for Cherokee One Feather. And of course, Robert Jumper, you are the esteemed editor. Thank you so much to both of you for sharing this with us. Thank you. Thank you. From the Cherokee to the Muscogee now. The Muscogee are one of the recognized tribes in Georgia through the Georgia Council on American Indian Concerns. This is a group of nine people. They're volunteers, and they were appointed by the governor. Their job is to foster the cultural heritage of American Indians in Georgia, advise state and local governments on issues affecting American Indians, and they assist with American Indian burial protection. Council chair is Neely McCormick. He's also the police chief of Pelham. His wife happens to be Marion McCormick, who also goes by the name Bonnie. She is the principal chief of the Lower Muscogee Tribe. There are 2,700 members right now. I spoke to both of them recently during a Zoom call, and they both shared how they are celebrating this American Indian Heritage Month. Of course, we've got our, our ceremonies that's happening, but the, um, also we're, we're working to improve the, uh, uh, the life of you know, American Indians in Georgia. I also will be teaching my grandchildren. We always do a stuffed pumpkin for Thanksgiving. Um, We remember to thank our creator, Basaga Tamisi, for the things that he has done for us and for the good crops that we had this year. And we'll do a stuffed pumpkin, and the children will enjoy um, learning different little myths and legends about the, the people. And we always try to incorporate within any celebration our elders and what they have done to help each one of us. Bonnie definitely reminds us to be grateful for our elders, the ones that are still here and the ones that have gone on now. And that's our show for today. Chase McGee is our senior producer. Special thanks to visiting producer Chelsea Tafoya. I want to give a special thank you to Bert Wesley Huffman, who is our president and CEO here at Georgia Public Broadcasting. In this season of gratitude, I am grateful for his confidence in me and support of this show. Everyone needs someone to believe in them. Marilyn Ryan is vice president of news. Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb are our engineers. And I'm Leah Fleming. All of us at Georgia Public Broadcasting are most grateful for you. Take good care of yourself and enjoy this holiday weekend. We are off next Friday, but we will be back with you very soon. See you then.